your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun, your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromicel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromicel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit oiebroadcasting.com and sign up today. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. John Nolan. In this episode, Dr. Nolan discusses his top 10 most important clinical nutritional trials and how physicians can use this information to help patients in clinical practice. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell. Also, please leave comments. Be sure to watch our full-length documentary, Open Your Eyes, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, iTunes, Google Play, and YouTube Movies and Shows. So let's go to something that's a little bit easier now. Let's go to like the top 10 plays of the week, so to speak, where, okay. where you know, I guess in Ireland, are you a big soccer fan? I really am. I, I'm a Liverpool fan. And yesterday we played Manchester City and the two teams are going. And that's in, 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 in the English Premier League, of course. Our Irish soccer teams are are not in that not in that caliber, not in that league. So Irish people typically follow them teams in the English Premier League. So yeah, I was very nervous yesterday watching watching Who won? It was a draw. So we've seven games left. The city are one point ahead. It's gonna to go to the wire. Well, in the U.S., you know, we'll, you'll watch SportsCenter or MLB and they'll show the top 10 plays of the week or the top 10 plays of the month. But we're going to go over your top 10 studies that you feel that has changed optometry, ophthalmology, and could help us. And you could help us what's clinically relevant within these studies and what can we learn from the study. So we're going to start with number 10. Okay, and it's a bioavailability bio study that, uh, that you picked out, and you and Dr. Gomez did this study where you were looking really at uh, how well we absorb nutrients, and there's a new way of uh, something that's being put in the supplement. I know they're using it in MacuHealth, and uh, tell us how it increases our ability to absorb uh, lutein, zeaxanthin, measles, zeaxanthin, or whatever supplement they're actually putting so, in. Do you know what? May I make a suggestion and we go the other way? Well, can we start on number one? You because want to The evolution of the science. Okay, it's an easy. Go, let's start with number one. I, I think it's easier to start there. Okay, let's, it, start it, with, let's start with number one. All yeah. right, so 1A, uh, Max Snodderly. Uh, his study about macular pigment. Uh, tell us about that. What did he discover there? Of course, yeah. So thank you for 
And there's some major studies, by the way, for full disclosure that have been left out of this. You know, it's just it is just like picking that team at the end of the year. And I'm sure you're on your armchair watching it going. How did they not pick that quarterback or whatever? And exactly. I'm, we're going to have some fun with this. I'm sorry for all the scientists that I and, and I'm. I'm maybe a little bit biased towards some of our own works as well. So for just full disclosure, I get that out there. But well, that's it, it, okay. is, it is what it is. Um, so yeah, Max Notterly's paper, and I put two there because Max is absolutely the godfather of, of, of science in macular pigment. And he was the first person. Um, and actually, before I talk about Max, I, I want to make reference to a, a, an Italian ophthalmologist called Francois Buzzi, 1782, which was the first documentation of a yellow coloration in the retina. And um, I read the literature on this and essentially back then it was much easier to do uh, experimental studies. And he had, um, there were sailors that were washed up on shore and these, the, the hospital took the bodies for, for investigation. And this uh, scientist, medical doctor analyzed and uh, made the first notification of the yellow coloration of macular. And Francois Buzzi, if, I, if I'm correct, 1782 was, was the year that, that that document was issued. But in terms of moving into the science, you know, when I began my PhD, I started reading papers from uh, Max Notterly and, and the first very famous paper, um, two papers, a series of papers, so I put them together, was where Max imaged um, uh, macular pigment for the first time ever. And you may be familiar, Kerry, with the classic Snotterly image, which shows you this beautiful yellow coloration of macular pigment um, right at the macula, right at the fovea, and uh, in the fibers of Henle, uh, inner outer plexiform layer. So in the actual layers right at the macula. And, um, and I suppose the important piece of that was at that point, Max in, in his works made reference to the fact that these yellow filters and would be able to filter light, absorb light at 460 nanometers. So I think that was just a kind of a major piece of science for our field to be able to image it, to see that they're intracellular, to see that they're concentrated in the macula, um, was really the starting point for, for scientists to, to really look at this. You know, because, you know, ophthalmologists weren't looking at this at this time. They just weren't doing it. Um, so it took this piece of science to to make them maybe recognize its importance. And the, the 460, what clinical significance does that have as far as absorbing light and as far as contrast maybe or scatter if you don't have enough of that pigment? Oh, thank you. And it's a great question to allow us to remind <coughs> your, your listeners about the functions of the macular pigment, okay? Because um, a couple of things here. Let's talk about uh, oxidative stress first, and then we talk about filtration because they're both relevant. So um, oxidative stress will happen at the, at the macular tissues because of oxygen metabolism. And you've heard me say before, it's the cost of doing business with life. Okay, so, you know, all of our patients, the retina metabolizes more oxygen than any other tissue in the body. So why do we, oxidative stress being one part, the second piece is, is photooxidative stress. And this, to answer your question, is where light. So blue light itself causes the production of these free radicals. And remember, these free radicals are these unstable molecules that are produced at the macula. And if, if we do not have an antioxidant defense mechanism there, this, these free radicals, uh, they're missing an electron and they will damage the photoreceptors. 
and they will make the eye very sick, exactly like what we see in macular degeneration. So having a filter there that has antioxidant properties, of course, but also can reduce short wavelength light, will reduce photooxidative stress, and therefore, by definition, will keep the macula healthier. The second piece is should be really interesting to optometry and uh, vision science. And the reason for that is, um, you know, what do optometrists do really well? They, they optimize light for their patients and fo help focus light to the right parts of the eye and refract. And we really focus on the outside. But I always like to describe macular pigment as this internal optical filter that's uniquely customized um, for, for, for patients. And that's why, by the way, we have macular pigment at the macula and not in the periphery, not in the parafovia. Because we don't, we actually need a certain amount of blue light, of course, for rod stimulation um, in peripheral. And that's why I'm not totally a big fan of like, well, I'm definitely not a fan of uh, intraocular lenses that remove all blue light. I don't think that's a good thing. There's a case for spectacles that have blue filters when they're not used consistently and so on. No problem. But the best filter you have in your in your eye, and Max showed this in, 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 in I think it was, was it 83, 84, those papers um, that did the absorption spectrum of these pigments were going to be uniquely key. So we're going to make the retina healthier. Therefore, it's going to work better. Um, it's going to remove short wavelength blue light from the part of the eye where we have no blue photoreceptor cones. This reduces the issues of light scattering at the macula, veiling luminance, and low quality visual experience. And, and the whole premise of the Crest trial, which we'll talk about later, was that exact point that, you know, um, we, we claimed our test hypothesis in Crest was that if we give these interventions, we can give you, Kerry, John Nolan, Kerry, whoever, a better visual experience just by changing the customization of the light filtration um, at the macula. The, 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 the challenge was how were we going to conduct an experiment to prove that? And that's where the quality of evidence comes in. Excellent. So the next study that we're going to we're going to look at is uh, well bone and landrum. I mean, yeah, so you can't talk about macular pigment without talking about bone and landrum. No, um, uh, two brilliant scientists, of course, and I've had the pleasure of working with them both. I've had the pleasure of um, co-authoring with with, um, with with them both as well on, on various pieces of work. Um, uh, John Landrum and I wrote a book on on carotenoids and retinal disease, and um, so, yeah, the reason why I, I, I have this paper in there um, is because, you know, I really believe that the value and our knowledge and the discovery of, of the different carotenoids comes back to our ability to measure those individual carotenoids. And uh, these scientists use a system called HPLC, which is high performance liquid chromatography. So while Max showed us that we have this yellow pigment at the eye and he showed the layers of the eye that they were present, Bone and Landrum using HPLC and for the first time in donor eyes and human eyes were able to say that this yellow pigment is at the, in the first paper was lutein and zeaxanthin. And the reason why they were able to do that at that time, the HPLC chromatography technology was able to distinguish lutein to zeaxanthin. So remember the carotenoids, this yellow pigment could have been any carotenoids. There's 700 carotenoids out there. You know, it could be many other reasons why we had a yellow filtration of pigment. 
So the identification by Bone and Landrum to, to be able to specify what the exact carotenoids were was a major turning point. Um, and for someone like me, who, who focuses on running human clinical studies, you know, being able to build upon their work and use high-performance liquid chromatography to conduct an experiment, which is to measure the supplements, to measure the blood when we extract it. I now have a value state-of-the-art piece of assessment that I put into that experiment to deliver data. Again, at any randomized control trial should uh, have a HPLC analysis. So yes, Max Notterly showed us that we have this pigment, bone and landrum using this uh, chemistry technology, this separation technology, showed us that the pigment was in fact these santafil carotenoids. And they're called santafil carotenoids, Kerry, because they have oxygens. They're, you have your carotenes and you have your santafil carotenoids. The carotenes don't have oxygen. Explain where you get, how you pick, how you make, uh, wait, what kind of foods you need to eat to pigment the macula. So if you wanted to pigment the macula with foods, um, you don't just need foods that have carotenoids. You need foods that are highly bioavailable with respect to carotenoids. So the type of foods that I would recommend would be uh, spinach, uh, kale, uh, peppers. Now, the reason why spinach and kale is green is because of chlorophyll masks the coloration of the carotenoids. If you extract chlorophyll, you'll see all the beautiful colors. So it's there in high amounts. Um, a food I like to recommend uh, for carotenoid is uh, our eggs. And the yellow that you see in the egg yolk comes from, uh, if, if you have high amounts of yellow, it's because the hens are, um, you know, eating the grass and they're getting their carotenoids, they're getting their lutein, zeaxanthin, um, and they're sometimes fed lutein, zeaxanthin, mesa zeaxanthin to give them these beautiful um, uh, egg yolks. And the reason why eggs are great is that they're, the carotenoids are already in fats. And we'll talk in 10 about the discovery around absorption bioavailability, okay? But you need to have, have these foods in the food matrix that you can break down and that you can get value from. Corns are great. You know, Mexican population have really high amounts of, we just published this too, it's not in my top 10, but the, the Mexican population have a really high amount of um, uh, carotenoid, um, macular carotenoid, because they eat a lot of corn products and a lot of eggs as well. Um, so they'd be the ones, if you're having salads, that's great, but they need to be salads that have appropriate oils added so you can get the bioavailability of these fat-soluble carotenoids. As far as eggs, is it, does it matter how you cook the eggs? No, uh, we did a series of experiments. We published a whole bunch of studies on egg consumption. Scrambled eggs were very good, but um, maybe uh, scrambled eggs healthier than fried eggs, of course. Um, I will say one thing, I would really challenge the data, published data, that suggests that eggs are bad for um, cholesterol. Um, I don't think they are at all. I think as humans, we're supposed to be eating eggs. Cholesterol is really important. We need to have cholesterol. Um, but the question is, it's all down to the ratios of LDL, HDL, VLDL that one has. So you want to preferably have high amounts of HDL. So if you eat eggs every day for a month, you'll increase your total cholesterol. Um, but you'll be increasing your HDL, your good cholesterol, not your bad cholesterol. Um, LDL being the bad cholesterol. And which is the which is the carrier that ah. carries it to the macular? Is it HDL? Is it the LDL? Well, What's carrying it? One study, uh, some great Liz Johnson has done a lot of work in this area. 
Uh, we've done some work as well, uh, but as has um, oh, Earl, Earl Harrison. What a wonderful scientist, Earl Harrison, and the work he's done. And um, Earl has shown that actually of interest to, to my area of research that zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin are preferably um, carried on HDL, on the good cholesterol, which, which in itself is very, very interesting. So they, there appears to be affinity. And there are some studies would question this, but look, I would believe based on the data I've looked at that, uh, I think carotenoids can be carried on either HDL or LDL. Let me say that as a point of clarity. But I think it's uh, lutein is preferably carried on LDL, carotenoids on HDL. Mesozeaxanthin uh, and zeaxanthin on HDL, sorry. Very, very interesting because you eat the foods, but you got to get them to the right place. You know, carotenoids aren't just in the eye. I mean, they're in the blood vessels. They're in, you know, they're in the heart. Uh, so they're, they're distributed throughout the body. And they have to, they have to, and we'll talk on 10. You set up publication 10 and we'll talk about the journey carotenoids must go on for them to get to the retina and the, and the, and the brain. And, and, and this is where the new science is really cool because it's not just about taking a lutein supplement or a mesozeaxanthin supplement. Are you taking one that's stable? Are you taking one that's highly bioavailable? That's going to give your patient value. And we know how to do that now. And, you know, that, that brings up a point, you know, because you have to carry this to the brain, to the heart, these carotenoids, these, these protective pigments. And if you lower your cholesterol too low, you're not going to be able to carry that. You're not going to be, you're going to lose your carrier molecules. Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. So it's, it's, it, it's a tangled web we weave. It's a tangled web we weave. I mean, I mean, I have a view on carotenoids that, you know, as a nutritional biochemist, we'd all love to, and we should always talk about good nutrition. I know you love nutrition, Kerry, and you're, it's your passion. We should always do that. But I think carotenoids are quite unique. I think with most other vitamins, minerals, we can source from good nutrition. I think carotenoids have presented a new life problem, a deficiency because of nutritional devolution of the carotenoids. So even individuals that look, try to eat healthy, the question is, are we getting enough carotenoid even from a balanced diet? We're not. Well, you, did that, you did that experiment. How many yeah. bowls of spinach do you need to, yeah. do you yeah. need to I think eat compared to 1950 to get the same the amount? Data shows of, uh, yeah. so, and the reason for that is quite interesting. In fact, a couple of reasons. One is the environment, CO2 and so on. But the other is actually um, carotenoids grow in plants to help plants grow in different environments and difficult environments. But farming, by definition, means we have to grow much more plants because we have a bigger population to feed. And when you make it easy for plants to grow, which is what good farming will do, and I'm not even speaking about pesticides or anything, I'm talking about making the environments optimal, plants will underproduce carotenoids because it doesn't need them anymore. And plants, plants don't care about humans. You know, they care about themselves. <laughs> so it's, it's, we are producing lots of food, lots of plants that is becoming ever so subtly, but yet to a meaningful level, uh, insignificant. So we even did one experiment, Kerry, where we were doing it for um, an English um, an English TV program. Trust me, I'm a doctor. It was called, it's on my website. And um, this doctor wanted to uh, compare um, uh, a lutein smoothie to, um, we use MacuHealth as a supplement. So the, the presenter, Michael Mosley, who's very well known, and uh, he went on this MacuHealth. Um, and uh, we had all these people where we, it was very difficult. We did this 
interventional trial, eight weeks, I think maybe. And Liz Johnson was brilliant help. They de- they developed the lutein rich smoothie, and um, you know it took it cost five dollars fifty a day for the smoothie, right, to make. And I think we got over 10 milligrams of lutein thereabouts into that. It wasn't very palatable. It wasn't very nice. But um, we, we ran that experiment for a series of weeks. And the results were, that, of course, with the smoothie and even going to those levels, we increased the carotenoids in the, in the participants that took that. But it wasn't anywhere near what we could get with one little MacuHealth intervention. Um, you know, so that's interesting, isn't it? It's, it certainly is, especially now oh, well, we're going to get to that with the new way of the bioavailability of uh, uh, delivering it. But we're going to get that and further in the studies. Let's talk about there's a study about stereochemistry of the human macular carotenoids that Bone and Landrum did. Can you talk about why that's important? Yes. So that's important because this was the first time that we realized that the carotenoids at the macula were not just lutein and zeaxanthin, that there was this third carotenoid, um, mesozeaxanthin, um, and I know Americans laugh at my pronunciation of three and third, so I apologize for that. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, there was this other carotenoid called mesozeaxanthin, and, um, and this came down to the very good chemistry work by, again, Bone and Landrum, where they were able to actually, uh, and Bernstein and I have done significant work in this area since, but you're able to look at this other carotenoid. And this was really, really interesting because as we know, um, when we look at spinach or when we look at eggs, we don't see much mesozeaxanthin, um, if any. It's in fish, it's in seafood, it's in various, albeit in very, very small amounts. So this work, not only demonstrated that mesozeaxanthin is a big player in what's, in what's relevant to macular pigment, but it demonstrated that, you know, there's an affinity for mesozeaxanthin potentially um, by humans in the macula. So that was really, really interesting. So there's been controversial whether or not mesozeaxanthin is, is in the blood, in the serum. And uh, do we know how to even measure it or is it in the serum? Oh yeah. So, we, we know how to, it's not easy measure it. Um, it's really not, not easy measure mesozeaxanthin or lutein correctly. You have to have a really good chemistry laboratory. You have to be able to um, run the protocol in a way that you can split these isomers. I mean, I remember my own PhD uh, and one of the, ma- my, my big moment in my PhD, I had a thousand samples and my whole research question was to look at lutein and zeaxanthin in the blood at that time, we weren't looking for mesozeaxanthin. It would have been captured under the zeaxanthin peak based on the, the, the protocol that I was using. And so being able to split them. But um, when you consume mesozeaxanthin, it absolutely goes into the blood. There's a big affinity for it in the blood. The blood is our taxi system. And we have documented mesozeaxanthin in, in lots and lots of uh, patients, even before they went supplementing. Um, so you can get mesozeaxanthin from diet. The question is, why is it much lower in the blood than it is in the macula? But th- this happens sometimes with nutritional compounds that we make, you know, there's this ratio shift. We see it actually, well, actually what you see is 10 to 1 in the blood, lutein to zeaxanthin to trace amounts of mesozeaxanthin in the diet rather, to trace amounts of mesozeaxanthin. In the blood, that's shifting to five to one. 
to again very small amounts but by the time we get to macula we're now looking at mesoziaxanthin being the dominant one is to one is to one and the new data from bernstein actually suggests that it's the mesoziaxanthin and zeaxanthin at the very center which is probably the most dominant part so there's an affinity and then this this i mean it's not con one thing i'll say about the controversial anyone that says that mesoziaxanthin is controversial or bad I mean, they really just don't understand the molecular structure of the carotenoids. They're, they're just, they're so similar. They're, 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 they're stereoisomers. So that's why I call them brothers and sisters. They're very, very similar. They just have these subtle dis differences, just like brothers and sisters. In the context of mesozeaxanthin, the difference between mesozeaxanthin and lutein is one shift in the, in the end chain, in the hydroxyl group, one, one change in the location. The, the basic molecule structure with all the hydrogens are, are identical, and that's what makes them good antioxidants. But by having a hydrogen bond, double bond in one place, it makes it orientate itself slightly different, gives it a different way that it filters light, gives it a different capacity, a higher uh, antioxidant capacity. And so this is one of the reasons why, we, why the macula craves mesozeaxanthin, because it's the strongest antioxidant. And have we found mesozeaxanthin in any other parts of the body? Maybe we'll find it 10 years from now. Have we found it yet? Yeah, thank you for this question. We, um, again, I will say it's very difficult to look at a tissue and measure and try and quantify something that may be in very, very small amounts. You know, the macular pigments are so concentrated at the macula, thousand times more than any other where else in the body, so we can actually measure them doesn't mean that they're not in other tissues. Now, in our, in our um, animal experiments, which we conducted, that we fed mesozeaxanthin, and we saw mesozeaxanthin go into every other system that was present, um, liver, brain, and so on, it, it, absolutely there when the hens were, were consuming that as part of their feed. So it, there's no reason why it won't be uptaken and used in a very positive way that when you supplement with lutein, for example. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. So the next study, uh, number four, is when uh, the, the, the rhesus monkeys, who I guess were starved of uh, carotenoids, and then they were given the carotenoids back. So what yeah. do we learn from that, and what could that teach us in clinically? Yeah. Yeah, so some some really the monkey studies as we as they're referred to are, you know, wonderful experiments in of their time because uh, Martin Noringer and, and and Liz Johnson was a major part of that as well. Um, they the hypothesis was was that mesozeaxanthin was coming from lutein, and the reason being the the idea behind that Kerry was that. Um, for the very reason I suggested, in order to make mesozeaxanthin from lutein, you needed a very subtle shift in a double bond, whereas zeaxanthin had a, had a different stereochemistry. So the, the OH group was pointing in a different way. Okay. Um, so basically, what we needed to do was to do an experiment where one group of monkeys was given uh, lutein only what Liz Johnson and team did, and the other group was given zeaxanthin only. And their research 
uh, theory was that those given lutein, when they chopped up the retinas and analyzed them, they would see that the retinas had lutein and mesozeaxanthin. And when those that were given zeaxanthin only um, would just have zeaxanthin, that was the theory going into it. And that was ultimately what they published. So what everyone believed, me included, and what we, we lectured thereafter was that actually uh, lutein will be converted in, in, in the eye um, from um, to mesozeaxanthin, and that's where we get our mesozeaxanthin from. But this study kind of has had ongoing discussions, debates, and commentaries, and some from me. Um, and the reason being is when I look deeper into the chromatography, which was the HPLC, when my colleagues and I looked at this um, very difficult chromatography and the authors acknowledged this, no problem. It wasn't very clear as to whether um, the, the supplements that were used actually were clean of mesozeaxanthin because we had discovered, Carrie, with, with a lutein intervention we were using, when we analyzed it, it actually also had mesozeaxanthin, even though it wasn't claimed on the... And this makes sense because when the companies, the various companies are sourcing the material, these marigold farms, if you like, they have to do what's called saponification. And saponification is where they basically take the marigold petals and they cook them to extract the lutein. And as you're doing that, Kerry, what happens is you are causing isomerization, which is basically a fancy name for a conversion. And so in the, as part of the extraction process, you are producing mesozeaxanthin. So it's actually extremely difficult to get lutein supplements that doesn't have any mesozeaxanthin. Most of them do. They just don't know it. They're not able to measure it, but we were. So what I said in a, in a, in a letter to the editor, um, a comment on this was, I wrote this paper, what is mesozeaxanthin and where does it come from? I'm not sure if you've ever seen that paper. And within this, I document very clearly that I actually think that these excellent monkey studies kind of need to be revisited because when I looked at the exact lutein beadlets that were used where the, that the monkeys were fed, I see that it has mesozeaxanthin. So it's not that I disagree with the theory that lutein can be and is in part converted to mesozeaxanthin. I think that's biologically sensible. And I think that happens in humans. But I don't think the monkey studies can conclude anymore what they concluded, which is that we get all our mesozeaxanthin from a lutein conversion because the intervention they used to demonstrate is now questionable in terms of it had meso. Does that make sense? It's kind of complicated, but you know, it's, really it's, 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 it's complicated, but so we don't know really if the, in the monkeys of the lutein converted to mesozeaxanthin because the mesozeaxanthin was already there to begin with. Exactly. But do, but do we know if lutein does convert to mesozeaxanthin definitively? Lutein does convert to mesozeaxanthin. Okay. So we know that. Okay. So listen, answer this question. Mm -hmm. So if you took lutein, and you put it in a jar, and you knew it was just lutein, and then you went back and measured that jar, just sitting there, three months later, would it convert on its own? No, it would have to have exposure to particular type of temperature, particular type of light. Um, we believe that the conversion happening in the macula is, well, different, different scientists have hypothesized different um, possibilities. 
Uh, Paul Bernstein believes it's not light. He believes that it is an enzyme and he published on what enzyme. I think that's excellent work by Paul. I have so much respect for Paul's work. I do query it though, because the enzyme that was demonstrated to do that conversion is present in many other parts of the body where we also have lutein. So if that enzyme was actively doing that, I think we'd see mesozyzant and elsewhere. So I think maybe it is the enzyme, but I think I definitely think it needs more work. The really interesting piece that kind of has followed all of this is that, well, why not just supplement with lutein? Um, because it's going to be converted. And this was where we had our central dip experiments, right? Where we showed that about 12% of the population have this deficiency in central macular pigment. And we hypothesized that that's due to mesozyzantin. And you remember in some of the most experiments we supplemented and those that we gave lutein ended up with a dip. But those that we gave mesozyzantin remarkably really changed their profile and and. and and realize the typical, and that's why I believe uh, another reason why mesozyzantin has such a value to be present in an intervention, because you can be sure that your patients, and particularly those at risk of macular degeneration, are going to get the full value of the totality of the intervention. Why would two of the carotenoids be better than, you know, having all of them? It just doesn't make any sense to me. So it's pretty definitive. It's about 12% that can't convert. Uh, is that something that that's pretty much agreed on? Um, it's about 12% of the population that have the central dips that we've documented. And that actually has been replicated by um, uh, a German study as well. I act, they actually proposed a higher number of, of, of um, atypical central dips in macular pigment. Does that mean they can't convert or it just means they have a dip for another reason? We, we hypothesize they can convert. And we, we've demonstrated that, as I said, providing meso does deliver a uh, central macular pigment. So that that's a really would kind of add to our knowledge in that. I mean, you can never be definitive. I would think uh, what I'm hypothesizing is that patients at risk of macular degeneration, um, I'm not hypothesizing, I'm saying that our studies have shown that those at risk of macular degeneration have these dips. And I think that's really interesting. And remember 10% 10, 10 of people of age 70 are, are at risk of age-related macular degeneration. Um, so given this is, a, this, this is a good point to jump in and give us the functions of meso, lutein, and zeaxanthin. What's the difference? Why are they each important? What's the function of each one? Where are they located? I believe that they're I believe that they're collectively important. And we have to look at Paul Bernstein's lovely paper, which didn't even get into the top 10. Um, but this was the one where he showed that. He measured the singlet oxygen potential, so how good they were at being an antioxidant. We, we won't tell them. <laughs> yeah, it should have been in there. But 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 this this um work um shows very nicely that if you may if you take a glass like I have here and say this is the total amount of carotenoid, and if we do that four times, if you have one glass with lutein, if you have one glass at the same volume of uh, zeaxanthin, if you have one glass of mesozeaxanthin, and you compare those. What you see is that the glass with the three carotenoids has a much better antioxidant potential than the glass with just meso or just lutein. The mesozeaxanthin is stronger than lutein, stronger than zeaxanthin. So this is in vitro work that that's really, really um, important in demonstrating its antioxidant potential. 
Okay, so that one of the functions is antioxidant. The second function, we've talked about it tonight, it's that unique, exquisite, customized central optics where we're removing short wavelength blue light from the point of the eye. The macula is 4% of the retina that gives all of our vision that doesn't like having blue light and can't use blue light. So there's an optical benefit. And then there's one that's probably understudied, but really, really something we're working really hard on at the moment. And I know you know about this is inflammation. And there's two reasons why carotenoids are good to reduce inflammation in my view. One is that, how do we get inflammation, Kerry? We have a, a trauma, an insult. You know, if Penny, my daughter, falls outside, the, the trauma, the insult is the fall, the impact on the floor. The result is we're going to, the body's going to try and fix itself. So the blood vessels will rush to that area. They will, will have swelling. We'll have heat. We'll or, this is what inflammation is. Or we don't sleep or we have a big belly. That's, this, that's... These, are, these are all the things that can happen. So and you look at COVID, for example, what's, what kills and what is killing people is not the virus. It's the body's reaction to the virus and the inflammation that happens in the lungs, for example. So, um, so the point is, if you get in front of the equation and if you stop the trauma by reducing oxidative stress, you're going to reduce. You don't have inflammation without oxidative stress. Oxidative stress is the trigger to the inflammation. Okay. Um, so reduce that. But the other is that there's clear data now that actually the carotenoids themselves and Nicole Stringham, who, who I work with, and who's actually, we're running an experiment at the moment where we're looking at crest samples and we're looking at the, the impact of the intervention on many markers of inflammation. And this, this fundamental research question of, of, of inflammation, I can tell you the first person in the world I've told this, we have a major project which will be starting next year called the LIFE project, Lower Inflammation for Everyone. And this is where we're going to look at carotenoids and targeted nutrition in reducing um, in, and its potential role in reducing inflammation. And this is implications for coronary heart disease, atherosclerosis, um, you know, many aspects of human health. So you were talking about the carotenoids, lutein, zeaxanthin and mesozeaxanthin together. Are we at the point where you could break it down and say they have separate functions or... You don't think it's important to go there? I don't think it's important to go there. I think the eye, what I always say, you know, anyone that has an issue with supplementation or has an issue with mesozeaxanthin, for example, and says it's not important, I always say, well, the, the macula disagrees with you because the macula has the more, has the, the three of these carotenoids. So, so yeah, we do know that. Let, let's break it down a little bit because you've asked me the question. Mesozeaxanthin is the strongest antioxidant. But having the, we, in biology, we call it biological synergy, synergy. Having the three of them together gives you a more powerful. So they help each other be better antioxidants. They help each other do what they're supposed to do. In terms of light filtration, it's also very interesting because having the, all of the carotenoids, the triple carotenoid present, means that you're filtering light, not just parallel, but perpendicular. So you're getting an optimized capturing, filtration, nourishing of light that's hitting the macula as well. And I think that this is crucially important. And again, why we've evolved as humans to have a triple carotenoid at our macula. And location. Is location important or are they mixed together? We used to think meso was in the middle and then, uh, wait, go ahead. No, no, I think I, I'm pausing because I like the question. And actually one of the papers I have near the end, um, 
we might cover it now. Okay, it's Paul Bernstein's paper, the the original paper from um, the Bone and Landrum one suggested a ratio of one is to one is to one, but you're going to have a composite. You know, it's not that you're just at the macula, just going to have meso. There's going to be trace amounts of lutein there too, but they seem, they they appear to be captured and concentrated in different parts. So. You know, it's not just going to be sectioned, if you like, but it's so they're going to overlap is what I'm trying to say. Paul Bernstein's recent work, um, which is one of the paper that did make the top 10. So we can skip past it when we get to it. I'll do it now. That paper is imaged the individual carotenoids at the macula using Raman uh, spec. And Paul's beautiful work here shows us actually that mesozeaxanthin and zeaxanthin are absolutely the dominant carotenoids in macular pigment and probably question in my view um, the amount of lutein that's there at all um, and maybe why we've had such success with our mesozeaxanthin intervention um, with zeaxanthin and lutein that 1010 is that um, it, it does appear so in a funny way what I'm saying is that all of our clinical trials which has been tested in Moorfields Eye Hospital UCSD different centers from across the world um, the, the human clinical works we've done is now beautifully validated, I believe, by Paul's imaging, where it actually says, yeah, look, now that we can actually for the first time properly individualize the carotenoids in our imaging, um, mesozeaxanthin, zeaxanthin are, are, are really doing a lot in our macular pigment and particularly centrally. Yeah. And that paper you measured in the skin, in the, in the serum and in the eye, is that correct? In, oh yeah, we, in all of our works, we measure macular pigment in, in skin, in, in, in blood carotenoids, and, and in the eye, yes. How do you measure it in skin? Again, Raman. Uh, so what you do is you can, you can excite the individual carotenoid molecules in a particular way with a laser, basically, that they'll give off an emission, and you can capture and quantify that emission. So when we measure it in the skin, carry, we're not measuring individual carotenoids. We're not even just measuring lutein. The skin is a screener. The skin measurement is, is relatively crude. I'd say it's very accurate, though. Um, I'm quite amazed. I was very skeptical of using it, but it correlates beautifully well with our eye measurements. Um, and uh, it measures the like skin carotenoids are beta carotene, alpha carotene, uh, lycopene rather, and, and lutein. And in our mesozeaxanthin trials, we've seen the skin score go from a very low unhealthy level into a very, very high level. It's very exciting that you say that I have that Pharmanex uh, skin measure in my office and I stopped taking uh, Macchia Health for a month to see what would happen. And it went, it went down, uh, it went down about 10 points. And then I started taking Macchia Health twice a day instead of once a day. And it went up 20 points. Amazing, isn't it? In, in a month. There is this dose response effect um, as well that you see in the skin. And one of the things that teaches us, Kerry, is that we have this major deficiency in, in carotenoids within our biological systems. I haven't hit saturation of uh, macular pigment five years into measuring it. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. The next study is, is probably my favorite study that shows that if you have low macular pigment, you have a greater risk of getting age-related macular degeneration. And that was a study you did with Stephen Beattie. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Because that's something that I could really use in clinical practice. If I see somebody who has low skin pigment or they have low macular pigment, because I yeah. test both, uh, I know they're at risk. And, you know, 
we have over 15,000 people, 15 million people uh, with uh, macular degeneration in the United States. Yeah. And certainly it's a leading cause of blindness in the United States. And with our poor diet and people being on the standard American diet, being very inflamed, like we were talking about before, inflammation being the key component to chronic disease. You know, we want to try to intervene as soon as possible. And this study uh, that you did really is is it's in every one of my lectures, and it, it really it, this is a game changer for people for the population to help prevent them from getting macular degeneration. I'm, I'm gonna stand up and maybe take down my my dissertation, my own. Please. And I've all my students. So this is my own thesis <laughs> here in my office. So, so this is my my doctorate, if you like, and um, the the core of that doctorate was was this paper that you have in your hand and the, the you're you're absolutely right for me this was a, a game changer because you know we had all this work going on with macular pigment and then you had ophthalmology and amd and nobody was able to connect them to each other nobody was able to connect them um and the, the rationale behind this work was to say okay how can we close the loop between established and known risk factors for age-related macular degeneration. So I've looked at 500 papers on AMD. There's been uh, major reviews done that have summarized the established risk factors and what are they carried there? Age, family history, genetics, cigarette smoking. So in basic terms, what we did was we, we looked at all these risk factors and then what we call putative risk factors, which would be body fat, light exposure, poor diet, and what we found remarkably strong in, in, in this work that, you, that we have here was that the established risk factor for age-related macular degeneration in general population, decades maybe before they're going to get the disease, was absolutely correlated, related to um, the macular pigment scores in those individuals. So in other words, individuals that were at high risk of macular degeneration because they had the risk genes or because um, they smoke cigarettes, these individuals had significantly lower macular pigment compared to individuals without those characteristics. So this was really the, a major foundation, a major building block for the ultimate research hypothesis, which was around intervention with macular pigment for, for carotenoids, because now we knew that there was a problem to solve and that macular pigment was actually highly connected to that problem when we look at being able to change something. You can change the age. You can change current genetics. Epigenetics will change future genetics, of course. You should, and we should always recommend to stop smoking. And then coming underneath that was like protecting your eyes from light, um, damaging lights, and also having good nutrition. And this has launched the macular pigment as a modifiable risk factor into the whole context of the, the, the equation of the disease and something that we, we need to do more on. So yeah, this, this really changed my life, that paper, because you know maybe if that was negative and there was nothing there, would I still be working in, in macular pigments the way we are now? And I think this piece of work delivered a couple of major papers in IOVS, experimental eye research, all these really respected eye journals of the time. And uh, you know, gave me the confidence to go and, you know, 
learn more about Max Nodderly, Bone Landrum's work, Randy Hammond's work. And I got to do my Fulbrighter course in America and it was having this. And I knew what I wanted to do then, Kerry. I wanted to, I, I believe we were right at this point when we had this work done. And, and what I really needed to figure out then was how to conduct the proper, the best type of interventional trial. And that didn't happen for many, many years after because you have to build a, a knowledge base and an infrastructure to allow you to deliver that. That's a paper that a first year optometry student should be forced to read and a second year optometry student and a third year optometry st student, a fourth year and a resident because that paper is life changing, vision changing. And I just wanna thank you for doing that paper. But not only does that de does macular pigment decrease us from getting macular degeneration, but having more macular pigment helps us with to enhance our regular vision. Tell us some of the some of the studies that Jim Stringham did that shows that it could help us with uh, going from light to dark or glare or photo stress recovery. And uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about I mean, that, that, playing playing sports. Yeah, there's a whole body of evidence here. You know, I have to give acknowledgement to Bill Wooten, um, uh, Randy Hammond. Uh, Jim Stringham, all these people that have done that work, and we've done lots of work. James Lockman, we've all done work around visual in various populations. Um, photo stress recovery was one of Jim's first pieces of work that, you know, and, and inter I know you're a big baseball fan, right? So a situation where, you know, that, that, that performance that may be influenced negatively performing in an environment like a baseball arena where you have high, high energy lights, blue light, you know, shooting down on you, and causing these little stresses that are subtly affecting your vision. So the time it might take you to recover, there's two types of recovery. One is like um, glare, which is kind of like just, I have a bit of a glare now because I have a light shining at me as I'm doing this podcast and that doesn't stop my vision. So it doesn't shut down my photoreceptors, but yet my ability to function in a glare environment is greatly optimized when I've customized my filtration. And Jim has done great work in, in the area of glare and photo stress recovery. Um, the, 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 you can have a photo stress, which is that if you have maybe an example will be driving at night and a car comes out of nowhere and you have these bright headlights and, you know, that might kind of blind you for a couple of seconds, maybe enough to cause you to have a fatal accident. And of course, these measures of visual function, Kerry, are the measures that get significantly worse when we develop retinal diseases like uh, AMD or diabetic retinopathy or even glaucoma that all these symptoms of, of these diseases are, are a net result but you're right to say that in the general population you know we can enhance the the visual functions um you know the first test that was done was the visibility hypothesis but and by the way the scientists accepted that that failed <laughs> macular pigment didn't enhance acuity even though they had a, a believing that it may it didn't and they accepted that. And that's my whole point earlier, where I was critical of, of, of works that don't accept what the data shows them. Because what, what then that led Hammond, myself, uh, Stringham and others, many others to look at was, well, what measures of vision might it be? And then we've arrived on contrast sensitivity. And I really think, you know, this is a, an important discovery on the contrast sensitivity. I think that is the next paper that we have carried the, is it this sustained? Uh uh, a reg a reg two but before we get before we get to a reg two uh so visual reaction time gets improved when you increase macular pigment 
and I and I know on the QT that a lot of Major League Baseball players take uh, a supplement to enhance their macular pigment, so they could see the ball. They they could see the ball faster. They could react quicker. Uh, in addition to the glare and the photophobia, and making it safer to drive, and even on a computer, uh, less eye strain on a computer. That's something that Jim Stringham did. So what? Uh, and sleep. He, he did a lot of sleep. work with sleep. Yeah. And 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 from the performance perspective as well, it's it's probably not all visual, right? It's the cognitive reaction, reaction time. And Jim has done a lot of work with reaction time as well. And you know, the baseball moves faster than than the observer and the batter can see it. So the benefits that we've been able to demonstrate, and Randy Hammond published a major paper around visual function in high performance. And he looked at baseball as an example, a very nice paper for anyone that's interested in that. And he, he makes reference back to, um, for example, you know, the use of eye block in sports and the baseball hat, and which there's patterns on. That's all built upon a premise and a rationale that removing and reducing short wavelength light is um, really beneficial to do. And extending upon that with customized targeted intervention that optimize. And I'm glad you also said, look, the location is important because again, we make this point again, I think we've evolved in a way the performance has started from survival. I think humans evolved to have macular pigment, not just for retinal development, brain development, which is crucially important. It was probably back to survival and catching your dinner, catching the fish and being able to evolve to, to do that. If you look at it from a Darwinian perspective, that's probably, it's quite deep, of course, but um, I mean, it, it's just, it's just obvious that this is going to, and, is, and I want to speak to you as well, the, the, the function bit, because optics is one thing, and every optometrist should care about filtering light at 460 nanometers and what that means for the macula. But health is another piece, because a retina that's healthier works better, and it's, it's essentially able to process light in a much more sophisticated and efficient way, and that delivers a better visual outcome. And actually, Jim did work recently where um, he did an in-house experiment with baseball. I can't name the team, but he uh, mapped their macular pigment. And, uh, you know, the, the, basically the higher performance, even within that cohort, within that sample, had significantly better macular pigment scores um, and reaction times and everything. It's just off the charts in terms of uh, what he was able to demonstrate. And, Jim has published a series of case studies as well, you know, um, and we spoke about case studies earlier, didn't we, in terms of the value they add and they, they've added to the knowledge. You know, nature puts things in the body for a reason. There's a reason nature put the macular pigment there. And, and when does nature do that? It does it from the second and mother breastfeeds, right? That's why colostrum is yellow. That's why. And remember, oxidative stress levels in a developing eye, developing retina are nearly double that of the adult eye. So you know, talk about colostrum for a minute and what it does to the macula. We don't, we don't really know what it exactly does to the macula, but I think there's a lot of evidence now growing that colostrum, um, you know, there's evidence now that uh, retinal development and brain development is positively influenced uh, based on nutritional profiles of mothers um, related to carotenoids, for example. So did, there's also very nice work now that shows, and one thing we need to be cognizant of is that expecting mothers um, become highly deficient in carotenoids. And um, 
because that's what mothers do. You know, they're, they're serving their child to, to, they give everything to their child to give the best possible start to their child. That's just nature. Um, but when it's now being profiled um, and we see that, um, as I said, Lisa Renzi and, and I think Paul Bernstein is recently doing work in this area as well, <coughs> that, um, you know, the placenta, for example, becomes highly fortified with carotenoids. Mothers become highly deficient. So I think there's a need to substitute this throughout pregnancy. Um, and uh, to your point, fat soluble vitamins and carotenoids being part of that lutein. Um, very much part of that are what give this colostrum its high yellow con concentration in the very early days. We, you talked about cigarettes. People or cigarette smokers have low macular pigment. What other conditions cause low lower macular pigment? So yes, we said age, aging, um, uh, poor diet. Obviously, these are dietary of origin. So if you don't consume them, body fat is massive. I did a part of my own dissertation. I have a couple of chapters on uh, body fat and we showed, we did a, a very cool experiment where um, we measured all types of body fat and we used hydrostat, um, we did, sorry, DEXA technology. We did electric impedance. We did your classic waist hip circumference. We did your crude body mass index and all of these things. And then um, the more gold standard measures of body fat um, were, were highly correlated at baseline um, be with um, macular carotenoid scores. So if you just take a sample, if you took the next 10 people that come into your clinic and you measure their body fat and you measure their carotenoid score or you measure ideally their macular pigment, you'll see that there's those that have high body fat will have less macular pigment. So the question is, why is that? One reason is that people with high body fat typically have a poor diet, so they're eating less carotenoids. But even when you control for that, Kerry, there's still a very strong relationship. And one of the reasons is that carotenoids are fat soluble, so they'll be stored in fat. So if you have a lot of fat, and we've measured some people with 60% body fat, so 60% of their existence is fat, um, the carotenoids are just going to be absorbed into that reservoir and they're going to have these deficiencies um, in, in the macula. Um, we actually did in weight loss experiments as part of other, and we published all this, and we demonstrated um, in a major PhD program that lifestyle uh, weight loss is directly correlated with improving macular pigment, serum carotenoid scores and macular pigment levels. And recently, and I think it's on my website, we did a, a, a fun experiment with a, there's a major program in Ireland called Operation Transformation. And this is where, and the, the whole of the whole island of Ireland get behind this. It's, it's, it's every January when we're all a bit down maybe after Christmas, um, there's this program where there's a panel of experts, uh, experts in nutrition, uh, experts in, um, you know, exercise and weight loss, ex in mental health. Um, and I was invited to the program this year to, to actually, believe it or not, bring carotenoid assessment into the program. And there, there's essentially um, what they call leaders. And these leaders... Um, because people follow them, they get to know them, they get to know their personalities. And these people are coming from maybe in the first instance, a really bad place and mental health or how they live their lives. And they get this appropriate support where they change in a positive way, everything they do. And these individuals then um, thankfully get to improve their, their wellness and they, as part of that, lose weight. And um, we measured carotenoid scores. I used the scanner in this instance. 
because it was easy to do as part of this uh, hand scanner. Hand scanner. The Foreman X hand scanner. Yeah, and it was on. It was probably made like the data. Actually, I might probably publish the data. It's that interesting. The they really, really, they doubled their carotenoid scores in eight weeks just by changing their diet, by losing weight. They think some of them lost up to, you know, 18 pounds. Um, lots of, they lot of lost the weight. You think they when they, the diet. you think when they lose their weight, the carotenoids get released and then yes, go to they the do. They get released in, back into, the, into our blood system. They become available for use where they need to be. And That's diabetics, they have lower macular pigment. They have low macular pigment. Um, uh, yeah, big problems with the macula, of course, diabetic retinopathy um, and issues with visual function, glare disabilities and everything that we speak to. Yeah. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and micromycel technology. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Each generation was supposed to be healthier than the last one. Lifespan was supposed to be increasing. We were supposed to be in this paradise by now. Instead of getting healthier and healthier, it seems to have gone the opposite way. Millennials were projected to be the first generation in history to not outlive the generation before them. We are certainly headed for disaster. I think a lot of people are beginning to question the whole story. We live in a time where the paradigms are shifting. And the optometrist, in my opinion, is one of the best kept secrets. The public doesn't realize about going to the eye doctor. So many different diseases actually manifest in the eye. The back of the eye is the only place in the body that you could actually see the blood vessels. Completely non-invasively, you can screen thousands of people, not just for their eye health, but for their whole body health. Because this disease is here, it's also gonna be here. And I can look into the back of my eyeball and there are expert doctors on the ground who are looking at my eyeball while I'm doing it. The eye is the canary of the mind. The eye is the kingdom. Will everyone please Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. 
I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had safe for you to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with safe for you. And most importantly, the reason why I buy safe for you is because it's safe for me and you.